72% of entrepreneurs are struggling with mental health. Most don't ask for help. Today is the day we change that. Today is the day we prioritize and destigmatize mental health. We are entrepreneurs, visionaries, high achievers, change makers. We defy the odds every single day. We dream the biggest dreams. We fail and fall flat on our faces. We get up and try harder. We believe in our ideas even when everyone around us doubts them. We are driven to find the solutions to the world's biggest problems. We speak because our voice matters. We show up because we make a difference. We share our most vulnerable stories because we know someone can finally find the courage to share theirs. And in our collective sharing, we rise, we heal, and we embody brave visibility. Welcome to this episode of Brave Visibility. I am here with my amazing co-host, Yasmin Anal. She is a super incredible high-performance coach, and she is who I decided was going to be the best person to bring about these amazing, incredible conversations. And today, I'm going to be interviewing her for this episode. Um, And so that way, all the listeners can get to hear her story and get to really understand some of these really in-depth things that a lot of this might not even been shared publicly before, um, and so I'm I'm super excited to to start this amazing conversation with you today, Yasmin. I am so excited to be here, Kimra. Super, super excited. Thank you. All right. So um, I obviously know quite a lot about you, but the audience doesn't. Um, and so I would love to really start, you know, kind of just from the beginning. You know, everybody's kind of mental health, emotional stuff, like journey has, it all starts in different places. Um, But I would love to start back when you were young and how um, you had mentioned to me earlier that, you know, your, your mother particularly really wanted you to kind of, kind of stay like this, like, you know, shy, quiet, you know, well-behaved, you know, like, like girl. Um, And then you discovered some things in school that kind of, you know, gave you a voice. And I would love for you to, to talk about that. Yeah. My mom always, I guess she liked babies that you can just, you know, or she liked kids, little kids that you can just kind of put somewhere and they just sit very nicely, kind of like a doll and they're well behaved and they have manners in public and all of that good stuff. So, so I was definitely a shy girl. Um, very, very shy. Like people can't believe that now because I'm like <laughs> total crazy, but um, I used to like hide behind her skirt kind of thing. Right. And then third grade, I discovered that, uh, well, my teacher discovered that I could sing and he put me, you know, in the chorus and I actually had like a solo that year that I got to sing in front of the whole school. And that was, I guess, my moment of like, I can do this. Like, I love being on stage. Give me the mic. Let me sing. Let me connect with an audience. It was just magical for me. And from that day on, it just, you know, I was throughout middle, I mean, throughout um, elementary school, I was in the chorus and then middle and high school, I was in the drama club where we had musicals every single year. So I was like the biggest ham that my director had seen and definitely not a shy kid by then. And, um, and I was just, you know, I really blossomed really like, I guess, had that self-confidence, that self-esteem that every teenager needs. And it was really nurtured by my director and also at home by my dad, who just absolutely loved what I was doing, who was really proud of me and never missed any of my performances. Like he was always there in the front row, just cheering me on. Now, my mom and I had a, had a different relationship. My mom um, was the type of person, well, is the type of person. She's still alive. My dad passed away, which we're going to get to. Um, she's the type of person, she loves you, right? She loves you deeply. Like she prays for me. Um, She'll be there if I really need something, like if I needed something financially or something like that, right? But at the same time, she was the kind of mom like who kind of wanted me to be perfect. Like I was never good enough for her. Like I remember one day her yelling at me So she never hit me. So physically, never, no abuse. But emotionally, there was was a lot 
that I realized afterwards. I remember one day her yelling at me for not making my bed like perfectly, right? So every morning I had to see, like we made our beds and that was something that was kind of like, you know, by the time I was in, you know, I guess like fifth grade or so, that's it. Like you make your bed. And I remember her coming and saying, this is not how it's made. And then just kind of undid the whole thing because there was like, I don't know, like a little crease left somewhere in the corner. Um, so that kind of like perfectionism really affected me as a child. I kind of didn't make it a big deal. I was like, well, she's my mom, you know, honor your parents. That's something that, you know, my faith teaches me. And I didn't really make it a big deal, but I realized that those things actually did hurt me, you know, afterwards, right? Afterwards, I, I came to the realization. And so there was a lot of that perfectionism. And I knew she wanted good for me, but yeah, that perfectionism just did not help because it just made me always feel I wasn't good enough for her. Now, thankfully, I was really great enough for my dad. I was great enough for like my drama teacher. Like those were probably my like strong foundations, kind of like it's kind of like having like two dads, you know, um, and like, thankfully, like I'm so, so grateful for that. But the, um, the relationship with, with my mom in a way was rocky, even though I never admitted it. I never made it a big deal. It was rocky at points. Um, we would always make up and we would always like, you know, talk for hours. Um, she is someone who has a great heart. She doesn't mean to harm, but um, she would really hurt me with her tongue. You know, with things that she would say here and there, it would be like, dang, that hurts, you know? And um, so, yeah, that's kind of like the childhood, right? So I was in a great home in a, you know, very supported by my dad who made me think like as a girl, I could do whatever I put my mind to. Like he always told me that because I had, I had a lot of male cousins growing up, right? So all the, all the time I was like a tomboy, I'd be wearing like jeans and, you know, um, whatever. Like I'd always be playing with my male cousins over yeah. the summer. And I remember like having, you know, like just having to climb trees with them or whatever, whatever games they were playing. And I remember them kind of like, you know, boys make fun of girls, right? <laughs> whatever. You can't catch up with us. And my dad always was like, you can do whatever they can do. And that really helped me have so much confidence. I'm so, so happy that I had such a feminist dad or womanist dad yeah. um, that really allowed me to blossom into the confident woman that I am today. Yeah. Now I'll, um, yeah, I guess that's like the childhood time. Yeah. And um, so you're raised in Turkey. Uh, yep. So the culture is a little bit different there than, than here. Um, and you have sisters, right? Yeah, I have two older sisters. One is eight years older than me. One is 10 years older than me. And when you got to uh, the age of wanting to go to university, you decided that you were going to go to America. Yep. So I actually started learning English when I was 10. So a lot of people wow. think that I must have learned English when I came to the U.S. Hmm. That's not true. I started learning English when I was 10. I went to a private school. My dad was very, um, like, he wanted me to go to that school. And he was, you know, he himself spoke multiple languages. And he knew the importance of being able to speak another language. Hmm. And, um, yeah, so I started learning English at a very young age. And I was determined to learn English well. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't going to half-ass it. I was like, I want to learn how to speak English just like my American teachers. Like, I want to speak as well as they do. I want to master this language. And I remember, like, all my friends kind of making fun of me. for Like, they were like, oh, pff, like, want to be American, trying to sound like an American. I was like, watch me, you know? And by the time I graduated, like all my American teachers were like, you're going to be so awesome in college because nobody's going to know you're an international student. Like your English is perfect. Yeah. So when I came, when I went to Ohio university, no one knew I was an international student. Now I have to like put the disclaimer. I did not used to wear a scarf, right? Mm. When I came to the U S from Istanbul, like I never wore a scarf in my life in, in Istanbul, Turkey, even though it's a Muslim country. And a lot of people may think like it's kind of forced on you or something. It was actually the opposite. Turkey is very secular. 
And it was something that I never saw anybody do. Like you, you, you were not even allowed to. Now you can wear it in a university or something in a governmental place. But at that time, there was a ban. Like you could not wear a scarf. If you're a student or you're working in the government, you were not allowed, you know? Um, so, which is kind of crazy too, because yeah. that's not democracy, right? Yeah. But anyway, um, so no one knew that I was an international student. So I just came to Ohio, you know, and everybody was like, okay, you know, like I just kind of blended in and I did really well, like mm-hmm. had the best time of my life, my first year. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, you had mentioned to me before that you, you started choosing your faith while you were in university. So yeah. what, how did that start happening? And, and when did you decide to, to put on the scarf? And then what happened after that? Okay, perfect. So when I came to Ohio University, you know, so it's a new environment and everybody, you know, has their, like everybody chooses their path, whether it's like, you know, like attending different clubs and doing different extracurricular activities and all of that stuff. And I remember, you know, like I had a bunch of friends who would be like, okay, well, you know, let's say we're meeting on Sundays. Let's say we have group work. So some of my friends would be like, well, I have church at this time. And another person would be like, well, I have to go to the temple at this time, you know. Then I realized I was like, oh, okay. Like I had never gone to a mosque Mm. Uh, unless it was like a ceremony, like someone died, like you go attend their funeral. It's usually in a mosque, right? Um, in, in Turkey, but like, I had never been to a mosque to pray. (laughs) Like that was, that was like so weird for people. They were like, but you're, you're a Muslim, but you've never been to a mosque. I'm like, yeah, we kind of just don't do that. Like, you know, uh, like we pray at home if we want it to or something, you know, but over there, I, I felt like I needed to anchor myself in something like Mm -hmm. I I was like drawn to like, okay, let me go check out. They had the Muslim Student Association on campus. So they had an Islamic center like right there in the middle of the campus. So I just went and I was like, okay, let me see how this thing is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was, it was, it was awesome because that was probably the first time that I ever was like, I guess seeing my faith from like, um, an intellectual perspective, Mm-hmm. I never, I never considered myself a religious person. So I still don't like that term religious, mm-hmm. um, but I, I've always been spiritual. Like I always loved having that divine connection. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that was, I guess, a moment in my life where I was like, okay, I'm away from my parents. I am, you know, I have friends who have their own faith going so who am I? You know, it was that moment, like that Jean Valjean moment in Les Miserables, you know, who am I? Uh, kind of like finding my identity and wanting to um, learn about like kind of my purpose in life when it comes to spirituality. Mm-hmm. And that's really how it began for me. And wearing the scarf was definitely a, a difficult decision, you know, but I, I read the verses. I read the Quran for the first time in my life. And... And I believed in it. Like for me, it was like, okay, all right, I get it, you know? And I really like, for me, it was like an act of worship, you know, an added Mm -hmm. bonus. It was something like, you know how like in the high performance world, we set triggers, right? Mm -hmm. We set triggers, like kind of like there's like a door trigger. Like when you enter your home, you kind of set a door trigger. You're like, when I pass this door, I am going to be my most joyful self. Right. So you enter your house as your most joyful self, no matter what happened outside before you came in. So it's kind of like it was kind of like setting that trigger. Like as I put on my scarf in the morning, I'm going to show up as the best human that I can be, the most honest, the most joyful, the most helpful, the kindest person I can be to everybody that I meet. So it was like I wore it with that intention, you know, and um but it was a very difficult decision because I come from a pretty secular family. Mm-hmm. The person I was really close to, my dad was like not into this kind of stuff at all. I actually did not tell him anything until I went back home to Istanbul that summer because he would have flipped. Like he would have been like, what the hell are you doing? Who is forcing you? Like he would have probably thought I joined a cult, <laughs> you know, or I fell in love with this guy or something, you know, like. He would have been really worried about me. So I did not want to worry him. And I wanted to be able to see him face to face. So he would understand that it was my decision. And um, so, yeah, that was like, 
actually his reaction was, I sent you to America, not to Saudi Arabia. What the hell are you doing? You know? <laughs> um, so he was really disappointed. But when he understood my intention, like it wasn't political, it wasn't, you know, something that was stemming from something that was like, let's say evil. He understood it, it was a pure thing. Then he respected it. I love it. And what ended up happening to you when you went back that summer when it came to your friends? Like all of a sudden you come back and they're like, wait, what's going on? What happened? Um, what ended up happening there? Yeah, that was a very traumatic experience, Kimra. That was probably like the one time in my life or the first time in my life where I felt I was not loved for who I was. I was not respected for the human being that I was. And I was judged by how I looked, you know, like I had to like literally prove to my friends, like I am the same person. Like, trust me, I don't have a weird ideology. I will never judge you for what you do in your life. I would never shove down your throat any of my beliefs. Like this is for me. It may not be for you, you know, but a lot of my friends, like literally 99.9% of my friends did not even want to see me that summer. And I was a very popular kid in the school. Like, like I said, I was in the drama club. Everybody knew me. I was like the actress of the school. Um, everybody wanted to hang around me. And all of a sudden, I wear a scarf. I become this evil, backwards, you know, person who is like archaic <laughs> and should not be talking to other modern people, you know? Mm. And I was like, I go to school in the U.S. for God's sake. Like, I, I'm not like someone who's just sitting at home doing nothing all day, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was so traumatic. And that was the time I decided. So when I first came to the U.S., right, as a student, it was really bad. Like, I, was, I went as an international student. I didn't immigrate. You know, I came as an international student. I was given the visa to study there because I had really good grades. Um, I was admitted. I took all the tests and entrance tests and everything that I had to take. But once I lived that experience, I said to myself, I never said it to my parents, but I said to myself, I will never live here again. Mm. I will never live here again. You can't come home again. Like I kept saying that to myself, you can't come home again. Yeah, you know? and you had mentioned to me earlier that during that experience, you you kind of felt rejected in your own hometown. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly that wasn't your hometown. But what was that feeling like where it was kind of like USA wasn't really your home yet either? You know, you don't yeah. school for one year. Even though in my heart, so when I first came to the US, in my heart, I was like, oh my gosh, like, it feels like I was meant to be born here. You know what I mean? Like, like I just felt so welcome. And I mean, people were just so nice, you know, especially in the college environment. Everybody was just so wonderful. My professors, my classmates, and, you know, it was just an amazing environment. And even after I wore the scarf, people were still very nice, but I somehow became an outsider. I somehow became the other, you know, um, like people started asking me, where are you from? Whereas when I wasn't wearing the scarf, because my English was so good, no one ever asked me where I was from. Like no one ever doubted that I wasn't from there. And then when I told them I'm from Istanbul, they'd be like, what state is that in? Like people didn't even understand that that was from another country, you know? Yeah. Um, but somehow when you dress differently, people assume you're from another place, even though that's not always true. I mean, we have so many indigenous Muslims from the U.S., right? American Muslims yeah. who've been there, second generation, third generation. Um, so it was kind of like I had to prove myself. I had to make my way. Um, and, and I struggled with that. Like my, I would say once I started you know, wearing the scarf, I kind of missed not having to explain myself. Mm. You know, I kind of missed not having to defend my faith, you know, because there were some instances where I had to kind of defend it and that it wasn't a bad faith. It wasn't, you know, whatever. Like yeah. I was always put on the spot where I had to be the spokesperson, especially if it was a history class or some sort of sociology or whatever kind of class. And this yeah. is before 9-11. So imagine. Um, yeah. But yeah, those are things that I was like, I wish I didn't have to be the spokesperson because it's just too much on a young kid, you know, like I was basically 18, you know, 19. So, um, yeah, 
but eventually, you know, I kind of, you know, you kind of tread the waters and you find your way. And I never felt, I think when you feel in your heart, you belong somewhere, no one can take it from you. Even if people tell you 50 million times you don't belong somewhere, if you know you belong there and God put you there for a reason, you just know you belong, you know? So I had that conviction that I did belong and that I was there for a reason, that I was there to add something unique to to the beautiful country of the U.S. Yeah. Okay. So... I would like to talk a bit about your graduation because you did graduate, then you moved to New York and all these things are happening. Um, you know, I would love to talk a bit about your graduation because you, we had spoken about how, you know, you moved far away and your, your mother, you know, she really wanted you to stay around. And um, you also had mentioned about your father passing away. So I would yeah. love to know like what, was going on during yeah. the situation where your mother like wanted you to stay, but you were like, no, I really want to finish school. And then when you graduate, she like doesn't even come to the graduation. There's like all yeah. these things. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. I'm going to get to it. Okay. Go for it. I love it. I love it. So after my freshman year, I went back to uh, Istanbul, Turkey to spend the summer. My dad was like, I miss you. I want to see you come home. And I was actually going to take summer courses but I am so glad I actually listened to him for once um, and decided to go and visit them during the summer because that August, my father got really ill. Just all of a sudden, he had high blood pressure and then he just got really ill and he passed away within two weeks. Wow. Literally six days before I was scheduled to fly back to the U.S. So we're like grieving and it's like, oh my God, you know, I told you like my dad was really my closest person in my family. He was my anchor. And my mom assumed that I would stay. She was like, you're not going to go back, right? I mean, because like your father passed away, I'm going to be here by myself. Uh, It's just easier for you to go to like schools in Turkey are free college education, unless you go to a private college, but all the uh, government owned, you know, state schools are really good and they're free. Uh, So like, I wouldn't have to pay tuition. I wouldn't have to pay rent. Like I wouldn't have any of those expenses. And my mom was concerned about that too. She was like, how are you going to make this happen? Your dad is no longer going to be able to pay for it. I can't pay for it. So it was like that hard decision where I said, mom, I have to finish what I started. I have to go back. And I came, I went back to the U.S., right? And worked really hard in terms of like not just studying, but I had to work three jobs to make ends meet because now I had to put myself through college. Uh, It was a private school, you know, and as an international student, it was like double the tuition. And and I was double majoring because why not, you know, uh, like, why not make things harder, Yasmin? And then I worked three jobs. I was, you know, double majoring, just worked really hard for all of this. And graduation time comes, you know, I'm like, you know, I wrote. So it was it was kind of hard, you know, to get like visa, right? Unless you're like a student or whatever. So I had this special invitation from the university, sent it to my mom for her to be able to come. And they actually gave her like a 10-year visa. Um, They they never do that for anybody, right? So at that time, they gave her like a 10-year visa because she had her own place. Like she was doing fine. It wasn't like she was going to come and stay illegally, work somewhere, right? They didn't suspect that of her. And so she was like set to come. I was like, yes, you know, this is going to be awesome. Now she never visited me throughout my college years, Mm -hmm. but she was like about to come to my graduation And one week before the graduation, like five to seven days before graduation, she tells me, she's like, Yasmin, I can't, I cannot do it. I just cannot travel all the way across the Atlantic. Like I just cannot fly all that way. I just can't. I'm I'm petrified. I keep having nightmares. I just cannot do it. I'm proud of you, but I just can't make it. You know, I don't even know if she said I'm proud of you. Honestly, I don't remember my mom ever saying I'm proud of you. Yeah which is something very hurtful because I've, I really wanted that coming from a parent, you know, and my dad wasn't alive. I know he would have said it to me. So anyway, she announces that she's not coming over the phone and I was a wreck. 
Kimra, I cried for like nonstop. I, I cried nonstop for like, I don't know how long, but it was so difficult to accept that nobody was going to be there celebrating me, celebrating an accomplishment that wasn't easy at all. And I made the hard decision not to walk. Mm. I know now I look back, I'm like, that was so stupid, you know? But I know why I made that decision. I didn't want to ruin the experience for other people. Like I had so many friends, you know, like people who loved me and their families knew me. I had so many people tell me like, Yasmin, you can hang out with us after like graduation. You can come out for lunch with us. Like my family would love it. But I was like, no, I want my mom to be there. I want somebody from my family to be there, to represent me, to honor me, to congratulate me, to have a balloon for me, you know, whatever, like to give me a hug. So I don't feel like an orphan. And yeah. And I was actually, I graduated with the highest honors and they were going to give like an extra ribbon or an extra plaque or whatever. I never got to cherish that, digest that. Um, I mean, you don't graduate for those things, but after working so hard, I think it's important to celebrate, you know, and it's part of that celebration to digesting what you've done so that you can have the momentum to do more in your life. And you can also feel grateful. So that was a traumatic experience, but that kind of continued, you know, that pattern continued with my mom, like uh, 2000. So that was 1998. I graduated year 2000. I got married and I begged her. She would not come. Not because, you know, she didn't want to come. It's just too far. You know, she was like, why don't you come to Istanbul and have a wedding? I'm like, we can't, we're going to have it here in New York. Um, So she didn't come to my wedding. I begged her when I had my first baby, she did not come. I begged her when I had my second baby. I was like, maybe now she will. It's been so long. She did not come. By the time I had the third baby, I was like, don't even bother, you know, like she's not coming, you know, but those things added up, you know, it was kind of things that, that made me feel like I didn't mean much to her, even though I know deep down she loved me, but she never manifested it. She never manifested that love. She never showed it to me. She never fought like battles to come and see me. You know what I mean? Like she never fought for me. And that hurt so deeply. Yeah. And I know, you know, when you have big things you want to celebrate, you know, a wedding, the birth of your children, a big graduation where you're du- you double majored and you're like getting all of these, you know, a- you know, accolades, you know, like because of your accomplishments and then to not have the person who's supposed to care for you the most. Hmm. there um and even making excuses to not be there i mean it just really makes you feel like you you're not even worthy to that like that you haven't done enough and yeah um and that could even be a reason why you did double major you know maybe it's because you were like trying to prove something you know yeah, i mean i was always an overachiever just to yeah. like just not necessarily to prove to her but it was just to feel enough Mm. you know, that I accomplished something. And, and I remember like trying to talk to my mom about these things. So I didn't see her for a very long time, right? All those years that she could have come and she never came. Mm. I actually could not travel back to Turkey at that time. So, so I was an international student. So that meant I was on a student visa. You can travel with that. But then when you graduate, you get a work visa. It's very tricky to travel with a work visa. Because when you go back, they may not renew it for you over there. You know, they may say, well, it's just a work. You can find a job here. Like being a student is different. Like you're studying, you have to finish your studies. But work, oh, it's okay. Like we're not going to give you, we're not going to renew your visa coming out of Istanbul, right? So it was very tricky. So by that time I was married, I had a kid. Like I just never wanted to risk that. And then my job sponsored me, right? So that's how it works. They sponsor you. They see you're amazing. And they're like, we're going to sponsor you to get your green card. And then September 11 happened. So they put a hold onto everybody's cases, right? Everyone. Like, it doesn't matter where you're from. Everybody's cases froze. So there was a period of time where I didn't see my mom for 14 years. 
Wow. And those were the times I was begging her to come because I was telling her mom, like, I cannot come. I can't come and see you. And I miss you. Like I really deeply missed her. And I was hoping that there was this like that silver of of hope that she would want to come and see me because she missed me. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, that's why it was really, really difficult. Yeah. Under, totally understandable. So let's go back to you graduate and then you go to New York City and become a teacher and you get a teaching job in New York City and teaching kind of becomes your, your passion, the thing that you yeah. really love to do. Um, so you move to New York City, you get married, you have your first son, then 9-11 happens. Um, which of course everybody knows what 9-11 is. Um, so what was that like being a Muslim who does, you know, cover your head, um, in New York city at that time? Mm. It was the worst day of my life. You know, it was the worst day of my life twofold, right? Worst day because I was grieving for what happened to now my country right? Like I love the U.S. I'm a proud American. I was like petrified by what happened and doubly hard because it was Muslims who did it. So it was like, what the heck? I mean, I remember praying like, God, dear God, please don't let it be a Muslim terrorist. Like just do not let it be a Muslim. Don't let it be one. Like I remember hearing the news and praying for that. Because I just couldn't imagine, you know, the backlash. And there was a huge backlash, of course. Like, I mean, the Muslim community definitely went through a lot because we had to now prove somehow it was asked of us, you know, not openly, but we had to prove that we loved America. Like we had to somehow prove that we were American enough and that we don't approve of what happened. Like, obviously, like who would, uh, who would approve of that? Like Mm -hmm. who would say it's okay to go and kill civilians? Like no one would approve of that. Right. But somehow, again, it was like, these people are horrible and they want to kill us. Mm -hmm. And, and then you're wearing your religion on your head. Like literally, you know, it's, it was just, it was the hardest time, especially as a, as a new mom. Cause I had like a son who was less than a year old and having to go out with him and having to face instances where people spat on my face. I had that happen to me on a train. I, I was called a terrorist. I was called, you know, just horrible names, mm-hmm. um, was told to go back to my country. And, and it was just, it was not only disheartening, but it was just really petrifying and, and, and really scary because it's like, what do I do now? You know, what do I do now? But I just knew in my heart, I was like, I belong here. No one is going to kick me out. Like, there's no way I'm going back to my country. Uh, this is my country. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm doing amazing things. I'm changing lives of the students. I'm helping the next generation here in, like, some of the most difficult schools, like inner city schools in New York, where I was giving hope to my students. I was like, there's no way I'm going to leave that. Like I am an amazing citizen and I'm contributing to this country and I'm paying my taxes, you know, that's a big deal. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I was like, I just kept fighting that. But then I also like, I remember being more, I guess, um, involved in the community, like doing more community work, like doing, going to churches and doing, you know, whatever soup kitchens or, you know, home, home, like anything that they were doing, I was getting involved because I wanted them to see someone who is visibly a Muslim, but who is a good person, who is not a terrorist, who doesn't want to kill people. Like I wanted them to understand this is the majority of us who wants good, who wants to live in peace, who wants to live with kindness and with love. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and probably that's really what kept me going. Cause I don't believe like if I took off my scarf that I would be like, oh my gosh, going to hell, you know, like, I don't believe that. I never believed that with any like cell in my body. I, I don't think God is, you know, 
I don't think he functions that way, right? But for me, it was like, okay, this is who I am and I'm proud of who I am. And I don't want to hide who I am. Like, cause I, there was a period of time in my life where I was scared to tell people that I was a Muslim. Like I would be in a situation where I wouldn't tell people I don't drink. Like I wouldn't drink, but I would tell them, oh, I just don't like it. You know, Um, whatever. Like I just couldn't tell them that I didn't drink because I was a Muslim. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So now all of a sudden I was like, I'm not going to hide who I am. If that makes someone uncomfortable, that means that person doesn't belong in my life. Like if they can't love me for who I am fully, then that, that means they can't love me for who I am. You know, I can't like shrink so they can love me or I can't like wear a mask so they can love me, you know? So that was the thing. And that's really what allowed me to like do start doing things more publicly to really spread that love and kindness and let people see that we're not all that. And it's kind of like a lot on your shoulders, you know, like where you're having, because the fact that you, the way that you dress, you know, like, it's like you have to prove to the rest of all of society that you're a good person. (laughs) Yeah. That you're a good person, that you're kind, that you're generous, that you, you know, like it, that's like a lot to take on a lot to process. And honestly, those were like all those microaggressions kind of came out this, this year for me, like these last two years where I started having my hijab problems, right? Like I even shared it as hashtag hijab struggles. Yeah. And I realized, cause I'm actually working with a therapist, no shame in that, you know, proudly uh, happy to announce that here, um, trying to unravel what happened. And one of the things we were able to understand is all the microaggressions that happened over the last 25 years mm-hmm. that I have worn my scarf, they added up, even though I was suppressing them. I was like, oh, it's okay. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. Like I never, ever lashed out at anyone when they said something to me. Like if someone called me a terrorist, I wasn't like, what the heck are you talking? Like I can get ghetto, okay? (laughs) Like I can do that. Like everybody can do that. Everybody can snap. But I was always saying, Yasmin, what would your highest self do? Like I would always ask myself that question. What would your highest self do? You know, what would God want you to do? You know what I mean? Like I was always trying to think of it from that perspective. And I was like, I'm not going to go down to their level. So if someone would lash out on me and say something, I'd be like, okay, it's fine. But it's not that I'm a weak person. Like I wasn't weak. I'm strong, but I'm not going to go down to their level, mm-hmm. you know? But those things, all of that suppressing eventually caught up with me mm-hmm. where I, I felt really unsafe in 2016. Three incidents mm-hmm. happened. One time someone tried to run me over with a truck and literally this angelic person came and pulled me to the side, to the curb. Otherwise I would have been gone. And I was carrying my toddler. She was like less than two at the time. And imagine like I'm hyperventilating after this happened. Like this never happened in my life. And that person came after me just because I'm wearing a scarf. Now the way I wear, like you've seen me, I wear jeans. I wear like, I, I dress, I look you know, like I have Western clothing with yeah. a scarf on my head. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not like I'm wearing black head to toe or something, right? Yeah. But still, it's something like, ooh, she's different. And um, and then I had someone, you know, in a gas station showing me their gun and telling me to get the hell out of there. Um, so incidents like that made me feel like, oh, my gosh. So this is after so many years of wearing it proudly. And then I started questioning my faith. I started questioning, like, why does God allow this? Um, I started questioning, like, is this even is this even mandatory? Like, do I really have to wear it? Like, I started going deep into like theology and studying, like, is this really mandatory? Are there instances where you don't have to wear it? You know, and and there are, by the way, where you feel your life is threatened, you don't have to. You shouldn't even be praying publicly if you know your life is threatened. If you think someone is going to come and shoot you, you don't have to do the ritualistic prayer in public. You can do it privately, secretly in your home, but you don't have to do it in public. So imagine that's like a priority, like the prayer, Mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so I went into like all of this stuff and talked to so many people who took off their scarf. Like I'm like on Facebook telling people like, I want to talk to women who, who used to wear their scarf, but took it off. And I'm like interviewing all these people, like not for a podcast, just for my own like sanity Yeah. and had all these conversations and, and just fighting my own demons, you know? Um, Mm-hmm. And, and all of that trauma just surfaced. Yeah. And I realized how important it is to have a therapist. Yeah. I realized how important it is to heal things that have happened, those microaggressions, especially for marginalized communities. I mean, this could be for Mexicans. It could be for Blacks. It could be, you know, for Jews. It could be for LGBTQ, like any marginalized community where you are taught somehow either overtly or, you know, openly that you are not good enough, that you don't belong, that you are not normal, right? Um, Mm. Or you're not the mainstream, you know? So, or you're less than the standard, right? You're not the standard, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's why I, I really feel, especially anyone who is part of a marginalized community, Like if that's one lesson or one message that goes out of this podcast for this episode, I want that to be it. Those traumas have to be healed. Yeah. They have to be healed. They're not a joke. They're not something like, oh, it's okay. It's life. We go through tests. No. Yes, you go through tests. I get it. They have to be healed. Those wounds have to heal and close. Mm. Love it. a thousand percent agree with that. So you have had these times where, where you really didn't feel safe. Um, and I understand it could be so scary to just be in public. And then suddenly you're like, wait, am I safe where I am at? Is Mm -hmm. this an environment that I should be in? And or should I just take off this scarf and nobody yeah. knows who the heck I, like no one would know. Okay. They, they might think I'm Italian American or, you know, cause I have a New York accent anyway. Yeah. Um, whatever, but no one would know I'm a Muslim. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I understand like that questioning. It's almost like a, 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 a pull with your identity, you know, because, yeah. and it happens to be where your identity, the physical outward appearance of your identity happens to trigger people in a way where they might create harm. And And it's not the sexiest thing to be nowadays. You know what I mean? Like it's the time where, you know, somehow this group is being attacked all the time. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I can understand why you would, you know, want to connect with people that may have taken off their scarves because you're like, wait, am I the only, like, 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 am I the only one questioning this? Because it's almost questioning your faith in a way too, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and, and something that you do for a p- long period of time where it becomes a part of your identity. Yeah. And then it's like, like, I've had people tell me, like, just take it off. Like, like, just take it off. Like, whatever. Like, you know, you're struggling anyway, just take it off. Like, people have said that. And I'm like, it's not that easy. Like the taking off is easy. I mean, I take it off when I'm home, right? Like it's not like I sleep with it or shower with it, (laughs) which used to be a question people would ask, by the way. And Uh I'd be like, yeah, I have a plastic one for the shower. Um, Uh But, you know, like it's not that hard, but it's like once you have adopted it and once you have kind of embraced it and it became Mm -hmm. part of your identity, it's kind of like your hair that you dye it, right? So imagine now you go blonde, like, or back to your regular color. It might feel like, not like you, you know what I mean? Like you might Mm -hmm. miss the camera with the pink hair kind of thing, right? Um, And also miss the opportunity to let someone understand that, you know, having colored hair does not make you a bad person or a weird person. It actually amplifies who you are and it shows your awesomeness at a different level. So Mm -hmm. that's what I was kind of like, I guess, battling with, because there are instances where I've had people who came to me, whether at an event or at the gym or somewhere where people know me. I mean, after the election in 2016, I had neighbors come and bring us flowers. Wow. I mean, I had people who who came and said, 
We love having you in our community. We love your family. Your kids are some of the nicest kids. Your husband is one of the nice, like my husband is the kind of person he'll be there for any neighbor. You know, he yeah. believes in the rights of the neighbors. Somebody's car breaks down, he'll go with them, fix it with them. Like, like we were good neighbors, right? Yeah. And neighbors came and they hugged us and they brought us flowers and they made us feel we belong. You know, mm -hmm. I've had people, strangers on the streets, like at Whole Foods or at the gym, um, people like buying me a smoothie or whatever and telling me, you are an American and don't ever let anybody in the office tell you you're not. You mm -hmm. know, like I've had such instances where I felt like I'm happy that I identify myself as a Muslim where people mm -hmm. can see I am a decent human yeah. and they love me for who I am, not for what I wear, for an accessory really that I wear on my head. Yes. So those were the things that made me believe in humanity. Yeah. And, and those were beautiful experiences, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And I think it's important that, that you keep remembering those things because it can be really tough when it's like, you know, you're sitting on the train and you're just like, wait, I don't know. What are these people thinking about me right now? Do some, does someone here want to say something horrible to me all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. And I'm here with my kids and my family. And yeah. You know, and, and I've had that happen. I've had that happen with my son, with my middle son. He was 13 at the time. We were checking out at, at a, at a store and someone yelled at me, like, get the F out of here. You and your people are like, you guys all want to kill all of, like, he just went on and on. And the store owner kicked him out. He said, excuse me, sir, you cannot talk to our, um, you know, clients here like this. You have to leave. Right. Uh, and I was really happy with that. And they actually came with us. They escorted us to the car to make sure that you know, the psycho is not out there hunting us. Yeah. Um, so that was really nice that someone spoke on our behalf that I didn't have to do any kind of speaking. But my son, you know, who's an American, like born and raised, you know, and we taught our kids, look, you are an American and you are a Muslim. There is nothing weird about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's what makes America great. And so our kids are very proud to be born in the U.S. and be American citizens. And they're also proud of their faith. Um, but the thing is, he asked me, he was like, Mom, do you go through that a lot? Like, because he's a young man. He doesn't wear a scarf, you know. Um, and he, for the first time, saw something very negative. Mm. And he knows me. He loves me, right? He knows. Yeah. He was like, you're such a good person. They just don't know you. Like, isn't that a shame that they don't get to know you and they judge you literally by the cover? Literally, you know? Yeah. And, and he was really hurt. He actually cried on the way home because he was yeah. really hurt. He wasn't scared, but he was hurt. Deeply, deeply hurt that someone did that to me. So... Um, we actually did some some sort of therapy um, with him as well. Like I made sure my therapist spoke to him and, you know, to clear that. Um, but yeah, those are microaggressions, you know, yeah. that happen. I'm going to tell you one funny thing, right? One actually, like when this whole thing was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? So my, my solace is always the beach. And in North Carolina, we're like two hours away from the beach and one Sunday, usually Sundays is like family day. We all hang out together. I told my husband, I woke up, I was like, listen, I really need a day to myself. I'm just going to drive to the beach. I need to just walk and journal and read and just see how everything is going. And, and I didn't wear a scarf, right? I wore like my hoodie. It was like, it was kind of cold, like not cold weather, but it was like almost spring, right? Yeah. So it's not beach weather yet. Um, so I wore a hoodie and I go to the beach and I decide that I'm going to just let my hair out for the first time ever in my life, like since I wore my scarf in college. Yeah. And I just wanted to see how I felt. Like I really needed that. I needed to see how it felt in my heart. Did I regret it? Did I want to keep it off? And I remember this couple, cutest elderly couple with their dog. The dog comes to me and starts sniffling, you know, my feet and stuff. And I love dogs. I love animals, period. Anyway, they start talking to me. They're telling me their whole life story. They retired. They moved there. Like, they're just talking to me like they've known me forever. And they're like, oh, you're probably like the age of our daughter, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're just telling me everything. Mm 
And it was, I love people, right? I loved having that conversation. And I'm just like talking with them and telling them what I'm doing, just chilling there that day without the kids. They're like, oh, that's awesome. And then something happened. Like all of a sudden I just had this like epiphany or whatever you want to call it. And I just kind of froze and I, I saw their eyes, right? Just warm, like wonderful. Like they were just amazed by who I was and what I was doing. And there was just so much joy in their eyes. And they were strangers though. We just met, but there was no questioning in their eyes. There was absolutely nothing like um, alarming, right? Like nothing like, is she safe? Can we talk to her? And then I realized I'm not wearing my scarf. And mm-hmm. I, for the first time, felt like I was wearing a mask. Like mm-hmm. I was wearing a mask. I was hiding from them who I truly was. Mm-hmm. And then after they left, we said goodbye, whatever. I just kept sitting there in silence and thinking, I wonder if they would have spoken to me with that same joy without knowing me right now, right? Because people who know me, they're my friends. They know me. Yeah. But they didn't know me. They were strangers. And they spoke to me so fast and so willingly. That never happened. Usually. Mm-hmm. I would be the first person to initiate the conversation when I'm wearing my scarf. You know, I'm the, I'm the one who laughs. I'm the one who smiles. I'm the one who makes the other person feel comfortable enough to speak with me. Mm-hmm. And then there is that level of trust, right? But yeah. no one would ever like come approach me and talk to me because it's yeah. like, they don't know me. Like I'm a stranger, you know, from a strange land <laughs> uh, to them, right? And I was like, dang, I will never know the answer to that. Like, would they have spoken to me? Yeah. I was wearing my scarf here here on the beach. Wow. And that hurt. Like, it was the best moment of my life because for the first time after so many years, I felt like I didn't have to defend myself. I didn't have to explain anything to anyone. But at the same time, I just knew I was wearing a mask. Wow. And that's a really, like, like you said, like an epiphany type of thing where, yeah. you know, sometimes we don't realize that. Like, it'd be kind of like if I put on a wig and my hair was just black, I would feel like I was wearing a mask. Like, because yeah. people would treat me differently because people mm-hmm. do make assumptions about you being based off of the way you look or the way you dress or the way you present yourself. Like, For sure. You know, if you're wearing makeup or not, or if you're doing this or not, like people treat you differently in different scenarios. Or if you're, if you're hanging out with the same sex, you know, like arm in arm or kissing in public, it's like, Ooh, are they gay? You know? I know. Just Um, hanging out with my nanny. Everybody thinks she's my wife. So, (laughs) you know, like people just make assumptions just by seeing people and, and it it was, but I think it was great that you did experience that, you know? Uh, Yeah. And I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that day. I mean, I remember crying on the way back home because that connection felt so good, Kimra. Mm-hmm. It felt so good. Yeah. And at the same time, I was like, but I can't be hiding who I am. Like, yeah. I want people to love me fully for who I am. Yeah. And I don't want to have to hide it. I don't want to tone it down. I don't want to shrink. And the same goes for like, yes, I'm a crazy, loud you know, that also, that's also another assumption that as Muslim women, you're supposed to be quiet and obedient or whatever, you know? So I'm this crazy chick who is like on stage and dancing. Like I've had people also confused, like at my event, they're like, well, you dance really well on stage. I'm like, yeah, I'm a hybrid of mother Teresa and Beyonce. You know, let's just admit that (laughs) I have my holy side, you know, my spiritual side and I have my wild side. So Love it. That's amazing. So I would love to shift just a little bit because you had spoken to me about the last time that you went to Turkey where Mm. you stayed for an extended amount of time um, with your family and relatives and and people and you hadn't really done it for a very long time. Yeah, 25 Uh, years. Yeah. So staying for that length of time, you had some interesting experiences where you did see some family drama. You saw some of the baggage and things that were going on uh, among your family. Um, what was that experience like to to go back? Because I know as myself, I was a person who escaped my family. Um, yeah. It was definitely a pretty rough situation. But yours, 
didn't seem so bad, but like one, yeah, I mean, there's no violence. Yeah. Or up, but, but there was verbal. What was those violence. feelings that were happening during the, that two month period of time? What, what, what was going on there? Yeah, it was. Um, so this, this July, right? This past July, we decided we're going on this world tour. So left the U.S., and literally packed our bags and started. Our first destination was Istanbul because, you know, it's on the way, right? As soon as you cross the Atlantic, you're like there. Um, and I was like, you know what? Let's spend two months there. It will be a great experience for my kids. Maybe they'll pick up some Turkish because they don't really speak Turkish. Mm-hmm. And, um, and spend some extended time with my mom and my siblings and stuff. Not a good idea, <laughs> we found out later. Because so much of that past trauma that I was talking to you about, you know, uh, that lack of love from my mom, um, a lot of this stuff uh, that kind of like things that she doesn't approve of, like even the work that I do, she thinks I'm just playing online. Like if if she saw me doing interviews, she would just think I'm wasting time. Um, You know, like a lot of that stuff, like of her not being proud of what I have you know, done in my life, right? Not seeing any of it, you know, like Ivy League degrees, a successful business, none of it really matters to her. And it's very difficult not getting that validation from your parents, Yeah, right? It's, it's not that we do things so people can validate us, but people who are close to you, you need that. You need yeah. like, oh my gosh, I'm so freaking proud of you. Yeah. You know? Acceptance to be seen, to be heard. Like yes. those are basic human needs. And so needed. That need so needed. isn't being given to you by your mother. It's not being fulfilled by your mother. And forget that you get the opposite of like being put down. Like you're wasting your time. I don't even like what you're doing. Look at you on social media all day long, you know, like doing videos and Facebook lives and telling them all about your life story. And, you know, why are you sharing so much? And um, all of that was really traumatic. But on top of that, being treated like a five-year-old in front of my kids, in front of my husband, that was really traumatic as well. And my oldest son, who's pretty wise, came to me one day and he was like, mom, I noticed something. And I said, what? He said, grandma doesn't know your value. She doesn't see your value. Like she doesn't realize what an awesome human being you have become. She doesn't realize what you have been able to accomplish. She doesn't realize what you went through, like from the age of 17 until now, like everything that you've done in your life. And she never approves of anything that you do. Yeah. He was like, I'm really starting to think she doesn't really love you. And then we both started crying, you know, because he felt so bad. He was like, you know, because I'm really, I have this really open relationship with my kids. We hug every time, you know, every day. We definitely like have a lot of touch, you know, like, because um, touch is one of my, um, like physical touch is one of my um, love like, languages. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of my top um, physical touch and um, words of affirmation. Yeah. And those two things are the things my mom never gave me. She would do acts of service. You know, she would do things and she would say, look, I love you. Of course. Like, look, I just, um, I just made your bed, (laughs) you know, or like I, uh, whatever I, you know, did whatever for you. I did your laundry. I folded your laundry or something, right? Acts of service. That's how she knew, but she never wanted to hug. When I, I remember as a kid, I would go and hug her and I remember her pushing me away. She'd say, no, 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 no. We don't show too much love now. I want to see action. I want you to show me action, not words of love. I want to see action, Mm. you know? And um, so, yeah, when he told me that, I was like, we were both crying. And we were like, I told him, I said, she does love. She just doesn't know how to show it. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, it's been so amazing listening to your story and and diving deep. And I know a lot of the listeners, I feel just from hearing this could understand why you are so passionate about this brave visibility mission. I am. Sharing this sort of stuff, it, it, it hurts almost, you know, but the thing is, is 
is I know me and you both know, like when we share that's, that helps give other people the power to share and not even necessarily share. Like we don't want everybody to say, Oh my gosh, you need to just post all your stories online. Um, more the sense of like being able to have a therapist they share with being Mm -hmm. able to have a best friend that they share with, you know, like, like building up those sorts of things. And I, I really feel like this, your story today will be inspiring people to do that. And thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably and being my partner in this mission um, because we are here to serve. That's what we're here for. And and we're, we're, we're very excited for the brave visibility mission. Thank you, Kimra. I, I am. I could not be more honored to do this with someone else. Like seriously, I, I love working with you. I love um, sharing this journey with you. And I know that also us coming together, you know, as two people who look very differently, right, mm-hmm. from the outside, you know, the punk and the Muslim, you know, um, and, and I love that because people can judge by the looks and think like, oh, what do they have in common? But it shows that when we dig deeper, that we actually can have commonality with so many people who may not look like us, right? And I think that's like also the ultimate message of of being able to like really just bring people together, you know, bring the worlds together and build those bridges. So super honored. Thank you. Love it. Thank you. Thank you for lending us your ears. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review so we know we're not talking to ourselves. If you love this episode and would like to dive deeper into healing your mind, body, and soul, make sure to check out bravevisibility.com forward slash circle to join our membership. Every month, we'll provide you with new trainings and resources on maintaining a healthy mind and most of all, a safe space to share and grow. Go to bravevisibility.com forward slash circle where you can have full access for $20 a month. Remember to use hashtag Brave Visibility when sharing this episode online. Follow us on social media at Brave Visibility and catch us on the next episode. Till then, live bravely.